They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if they don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours? Or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 34 The Confession We left episode 33 still thinking about Bible John, about Anthony Hardy and about isotope analysis and the necessity to make sure that happens and we're going to be covering all of those aspects in this episode but this could be quite an important episode something was revealed to us this week that's new and potentially important and also potentially comes from an impeccable source we don't know yet if it's true that's one of the things about a live investigation this is the kind of process we need to go through we find out things and we try and establish whether they're true and we're still in the process of doing that but we'll bring you up to date with exactly what's happened later in the podcast because it could be the biggest breakthrough yet and it only arose because the podcast and the facebook page exist it's a result of doing what we all do patiently turning stones over it concerns anthony hardy and it concerns what happened before anthony hardy killed those women now many people will say oh i always knew it was hardy but that's really no use without evidence we need evidence to link hardy to this case in order to take a step forward and we may just have the beginnings of that in this episode we may have an actual link between hardy and the young man's body found in windsill but before we get to that we need to work out where we are with everything else so i wanted to speak to ian so he could bring me up to date with what his thoughts were on bible john and also we'd had the opportunity to walk around the site that Fred was found in. He'd never done that before. And I'm always interested in finding out what people's impressions are once they're actually at the site of the burial. It's sometimes quite different from what they pick up from the podcast. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? Glad I caught you on this Thursday because I know you're, you're, off, uh, you're off gallivanting somewhere, aren't you, this weekend? Late Friday, early Saturday to get to London, catch the Eurostar, go to Paris, drinks with Frankie Dittori on Saturday night. Wow. And the Arc de Triomphe on Sunday. Yeah, should be good. Mm. No, very good. That sounds like a fantastic way to spend the weekend. I've never been, and it's uh, it's ticking off for something off the bucket list. We're going to have to start having an Ian's Tips segment. Should have, asked, should have asked me yesterday. Apple away, one, 15 to two. Which I, I own uh, one of the hairs in its tail. Do you? 
Yeah. And then here we go. Before it happens, this afternoon at Salisbury, mm-hmm. ra- Racing Brakes Rider. It's 130 at the moment, and I own a different hair in its... I think it's a hair in its mane that I own on that one. So, anyway, there's a few things to talk about. So, firstly, mm-hmm. I want to talk about Bible George. You've, you've been kind of close to this. And I just want to get your view at this point in time. Where are we with Bible John? How do you feel about it? And where do we go from here, really? I think we're exactly where we were at the last podcast because we've not found uh, any new information, any new unsolved murders, for example, or any further detail on the assaults in Derbyshire to rule him in or rule him out. You know, I'm probably more excited about the possibility of ruling him in than you are because I like his description in comparison to what we know about Fred's. Of course, I can't get away from the fact that Fred is buried just at the same time as Bible John stops killing. That's That's a massive link, I think. Very, very circumstantial, but we've not been able to push it forward at all. And actually, I'm not sure there's a lot to be gained in looking for needles in haystacks, etc. because there's a very easy way to rule it in or out, which is uh, kind of what I've been developing over the last week or so. The, uh, the Police Scotland have got DNA for Bible John. At least they've got some results. They can't get any more, of course, but they've got a result. And I know they've got results of Fred DNA, mitochondrial DNA. And I think a comparison of those two would be able to rule Bible John in or out. And to that end, I'm reaching out to a, a, a journalist in the local Glasgow press who has always got an eye for a good story. I'm hoping this one will tempt him and see if we can't get some uh, swell of opinion in Scotland to say you've got to do it to the police. I've got the name of the detective who uh, our agents were referred to mm-hmm. when they said that they had information about it and uh, I've been waiting for them to call us back but they haven't yet so I will be calling them just to uh, plant the seeds and we'll see if we can get that as I say very easily ruled in or out because they don't have to take DNA they just have to compare two results and Mm. hopefully they're comparable so I think that's where we are with Bible John yeah that makes uh that makes perfect sense i think it's one of those things that we we as you say we've planted the seed we've got some people hopefully interested in it there's a very easy way of ruling them in or ruling them out but us spending 90 percent of our time on it is probably going to be of, of of minimal productivity if you like right now we've just got to wait to see what see what develops on that i think and that's a sensible way forward I think. cool now the other thing that we did in the course of uh, a couple of weeks ago is I uh, we went on a walk, didn't we, Ian? We did. We didn't hold hands, but we definitely walked side by side. We did onto uh, onto the island in the yeah. Trent where, where it all happened. So you uh, came well, down, and we 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 did uh, we did the Fred tour, didn't we? We did, and and I was taken aback by. Several observations that I made uh, in comparison to how I had been imagining things, having listened to the first 30 episodes of the, uh, the podcast. And the most overriding misconception I had just from listening was on the size of the island. I mean, you called it an island in the middle of the trend. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. You can't you could stand in the middle of it and be nearly a mile away from the water on either side. You it don't is. feel like you're on an island, do you? It doesn't it feel is. like it's an island at all, no. No. 
It is because it's, you know, there are stretches of the River Trent all the way around it. Now, one of the things that people sometimes talk about is the fact that the where Fred was found was like a little island off the big island. And sometimes people get a little bit confused with that. But what's happened is that little channel uh, that separated a little island from the big island is now silted up. It's all silted up. Mm. So it's all joined in one big thing, really, now. I mean, my impression, having seen a bit further down from that island, because we went down to have a look at the weir as well, didn't we? Yeah. I think it was separated, but you could, you know, if you were a bit fitter than I was, you probably would have been able to jump over the water. Oh, no question. No question. People did that, yeah. No question. Cows did it. Right. Uh, you know, I've never, never watched the cow long jump competition, but I suspect... No. There was a famous cow that jumped over the moon once, though. Uh, that, that, well, that's true. Maybe I'm doing cows down a little bit there, but that little part of the island is still part of this massive one-and-a-half-mile-long island. Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting you picked that up. Uh, anything else that, that kind of jumped yeah, well, out of walking through? I mean, we parked up at the start of it and walked down, and that is quite a long walk. Thinking mm. uh, you really have to know that you can get down on the track to there to even attempt to get down on the track to there, if you see what I mean. I, do. I don't think anybody would walk, walk it pushing a barrow with a body in it or a body over their shoulder or anything. You wouldn't do that could get down in a vehicle but you'd have to know you could because you wouldn't you wouldn't chance it i don't think you just wouldn't stumble over that you've got to know it if you're driving there 100 percent. i think we said that anyway but uh, yeah i think it just double underlines the person knows that that island's there if they took the body in a car Mm. one of the other things i think i was also struck by because i can remember on the facebook page i even made this comment before i was involved in the podcast other than a listener I'd looked on the map and saw the weir and suggested maybe you could get across the weir because I'd heard that back when it was in operation with the mill, they had to get across the weir to, to clear blockages so they didn't damage the weir. So you, you can walk across it, but looking at it in real real life, if you like, this is not a weir across the river at sort of right angles to the bank. This is such an acute angle to go from one side of that part of the trend across to where the island is you it's a huge walk it's maybe 200 yards yeah and there's no way again you know i've killed someone i've got to bury the body so i'm going to trudge across the top of a 200 yard weir with uh, all the water and everything. it wouldn't do it can't possibly have been there well that's interesting and of course when we went there it had been dry for a long time so so the river was probably at its lowest point but mm. there was there was still quite a lot of water rushing over that weir wasn't there oh absolutely yeah yeah uh and you know if it depends on the on the the time of year but i think that that weir would be impossible to cross with you know twice as much water going over it as we saw you couldn't do it you would never even attempt it so just to kind of encapsulate that what do you think happened in terms of our body got to where it was long odds on if somebody's took him across the bridge that would happen very quickly because that was right angles. That can't have been a very far across. No, it was about a 20 yard. 20 uh, yards, yeah. That that sounds easier to put someone over your shoulder and get across there. Um, if it, if they came onto the island and drove down, it, it's possible to do that, uh, of course. But you've got to know, I think you've got to know where you're going there. 
and drive straight to it. Because there's quite a few other places to bury a body, aren't there, before you get there? Yeah, if you've got him in a car and you go onto the island and you start driving down to where he was buried, you could probably have picked better places, places further away from the track on the yeah. island before you get anywhere near where he was actually buried. So, yeah, uh, I think if he came by car onto the island, they knew exactly where they were taking him to. And therefore, that means probably know the area really well, probably local. Yeah. Good. Well, that was a really, it was really great, great to see you anyway, but it was, uh, it, it was a nice, uh, it was a nice sunny day and we had a, and we did get caught in the rain, didn't we? we well, we just heard the thunder and got in the car just in time. That's right. That's right. Um, one, one last thing, the, um, the range, that huge wall thing, I, I know people have suggested maybe there was a rendezvous, a lover's yeah. lane rendezvous in there that went wrong again. It's miles away literally a mile away i can't see anything going wrong there a sexual encounter going wrong a partner being killed and somebody saying i know i'm gonna i'm gonna carry this person right across to the other side of the island and, and put him where he was found so i'm not sure how relevant that is i mean it's there and it's a big structure and it's been talked about as a place of assignation but but you're right it's it's a long 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 way away from where he was buried well, that's good, Ian. Uh, it's always good when people actually physically see it. I tried to incorporate some of that when we did the YouTube walk around, and, and, but, but there's nothing quite like seeing it. I, I followed you on, on, the, on, the, on YouTube as you walked around. Mm. And, you know, so I saw all of that. I spent the time getting there that you did. Mm. Um, it's not the same as actually getting on your own two legs and walking down there yourself to feel just how massive that place is. It's and it feels it feels remote, doesn't it? You know, we yeah. didn't we didn't see anyone, did we, when we, we were there? One or two fishermen. Oh yeah, there was a couple at the start, wasn't there? Mm. Now, the other thing that you've been spending a lot of time on, uh, and we haven't really dealt with yet, but we're about to deal with in a very significant way, mm. is Anthony Hardy. And particularly you've been looking at Hardy's early life. And Hardy's life in London, before there were any killings, no, before no one suspected that he'd been killing women and disposing with their bodies. And that's an interesting story in its own right. So what I wanted, if possible, if could you take us through Hardy's life kind of immediately before he started killing women? Because I think that 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 is quite an interesting period. The interesting thing is that you go back to, to, to January 2002. Hardy has quarrelled with his neighbour and then <laughs> gone really over the top in the sort of retribution that he made um, over a leaky pipe or something. Um, was Who was the neighbour? Was it? I don't need the name, but was it a, was it a woman? Was it a man? Was it? I mean, oh, it's a woman. Yeah, it's uh, it's January two thousand and two. Okay, uh, he'd been quarrelling with his neighbour over a leaky pipe, and the reaction to their quarrel was Hardy. Um, Hardy went and scrawled uh, an obscene message, um, referring to his neighbour as a. I'm going to say it. Referring to his neighbour as a slut, and then using a cut down cider bottle as a funnel, poured battery acid through her letterbox. Um, the police were called and 
went round to his flat. In going to the to his flat, they found a, be- a bedroom door locked, and when they finally got that door open, they found um, the body of a, a woman, a, uh, dead on the bed, naked and dead on the bed, Sally White. Bloody hell. And he was arrested for murder. A very um, unexpected uh, conclusion by the pathologist, later to be discredited and struck off, found that Sally White had died of a heart attack. And the actual injuries on Sally White's body were fairly superficial. So the police really didn't have any choice but to um, but to drop the murder charge. Okay. So but he concealed the body, presumably. Be, you know, well, be- the, the thing is, the body is naked on the bed with a camera on a tripod set up next to it. God. And a bucket, a bucket of warm water. Not really sure what was going to happen with that, but he's interrupted at that point. Um, given what we know later on, where the same thing happened twice more, and the the girls ended up chopped up in bits and out in the bins. Um, it's incredible that a pathologist said that was a death by natural causes, and the police just couldn't take it any further. So he's in Pentonville prison awaiting his murder trial at that particular point when they then shifted him from there um, under a uh, an order under the Mental Health Act and moved him from Pentonville to the local open psychiatric unit, St. Luke's in Muswell Hill, um, where he got treatment for a mood disorder, which is uh, which, which has been a range of disturbed mental states anyway. Um, right. Right. So that's where, that's where he is on in March 2002. He's now in the care of psychologists, I guess, psychiatrists. Did the psychiatrist have anything to say about him, his character, how dangerous he was, that kind of thing, at that point? What Price says is that they've got to try and formulate an idea from information that they've, they've accumulated before they go and talk to him. And Price is his, um, Price is his doctor. Price is, the, Price is the guy who wrote this book. Okay. The psychiatrist who goes to assess him and do a risk assessment on him. Price interviews him 28th of August 2002 and is, is aware of unusual details in his background, which, which we know. Um, we know that he attempted to murder his wife in 1986. We know that he, there were frequent instances of domestic violence against his wife, that he indulged in extramarital affairs without trying to cover them up. He treated her appallingly, basically. Right. Um, so they've got that. They know he came back to the UK after that broke down. Back in the UK, he's diagnosed with bipolar disorder, uh, abnormal personality traits, and increasingly alcohol abuse. He's mm-hmm. been in prison for criminal damage to his ex-wife's house for stealing her partner's new car. Uh basically for harassing his ex-wife. So he was in and out of psychiatric hospitals and hostels and routinely picked up convictions for theft and drunken disorderly. There was one instance in 1998 where he was arrested, where he was accused of rape of a prostitute, but there was no evidence, so that got dropped. So there is this all-encompassing feeling that he treats women really badly, yeah, there's a um, history of violence against women, isn't there, clearly? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, 
But then when he interviews him, this is interesting, when he interviews him, he's probably been off drink for six months at that point. Uh, and he says that his, his speech was measured. He gave considerable thought to his answers before responding, denied any manic or depressive symptoms, gave little away. But nevertheless, Price says it made him feel really uneasy. They had to assess the risk at that stage. Mm. And uh, their conclusion was that he could pose a risk of serious violence to women, independent of his disturbed mental state and alcohol abuse. But they also had to work on the basis that he had no hand in the death of the woman back in January because that had found that, that had been a heart attack. The coroner thought that yeah. at the time, yeah. Yeah. So they didn't think he was homicidal in any way. The thing is about Hardy, of course, he's a very clever man. He's a very manipulative man, I think, and yeah. probably saw this as an opportunity to get one over on the authorities a little bit. Absolutely. He does this risk assessment and uh, they draw up a plan for the local um, guys to have so that there's a plan for how to deal with him if and when he's released. The guy who did the risk assessment didn't know that they were releasing him when they released him in November. Um, the first he knew that he'd been released was when he got a call on the 30th of December saying that they'd found body parts in his flat and he was the prime suspect. So he was very shocked. Big inquiry over that, which eventually they were exonerated on because they, 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 there was nothing that they could actually hold him for. Hold him for, you know, apparently he, he made everybody feel creepy, but that's not something that you can... You can't lock people up for lock that. People have been definitely for that, no. No, that's true. So, so he goes back home. And there must be a period of time when he goes back home that the neighbours still living next door and Hardy reappears after being sectioned. Did he just let that lie or did he anything? Let it lie. He kept himself to himself and lived almost like a recluse. Okay. Um, although not a recluse, because clearly during that uh, during December, the two prostitutes were enticed in that early part of December. Because it's December the 30th when the body parts are discovered. And so he's obviously had them for quite some time to play with them, to pose them, to photograph them, to chop them up. Professor Wilson, in his documentary about Hardy, spoke to some of the guys that lived in hostels with him in the mid-90s. And they were in no doubt that he was capable of murder. He's a big bloke and his favourite thing was to come and put his arms around you and just crush you mm. and one of their friends had a dislocated shoulder um another one had ribs broken and you know he's a powerful powerful guy so and they thought he was very you know they, they reported routinely he'd be drunk and he'd fight and he'd punch and but okay. i mean he's clearly violent when when he's when he's arrested and this is in when he's picking up his um insulin Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, the first two policemen to try and arrest him, one ends up knocked out, another one is stabbed in the hand and receives a, a fractured eye socket. He was not, not calmed down until backup arrived, and then they got him. So I'm back in the studio now, and that's what was going on in 2002 in London with Anthony Hardy. Now, why is that particularly relevant right now to us? Well, for this reason. We heard something a couple of weeks ago that to our knowledge 
has never been made public. We don't yet know if it's actually true. We're working on that, trying to corroborate it. But it has a chance of being true. And if it is true, it's a major, major development. And because it's such a major development, it's been a big factor in the investigation that we've been doing since the last podcast. But we're going to tell you about it in the second half of this podcast. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Wherever you are around the world, we really appreciate it. And we seem to be moving forward again. And that's what will happen. Big leap forward when we least expect it. Because when you're running an investigation in real time, things don't run to a timetable. That's why we just need to keep going. Because eventually, we will find out who Fred is. But it will take as long as it takes. I mentioned in the last episode about the need to perform isotopic analysis on Fred's teeth and developing a campaign to demand that that's done. And I want to bring you up to date on a few things I've done on that since the last episode. I've written a long article for the Burton Mail about the case and making the case for isotopic analysis. I posted it on Facebook and some of you would have had chance to read it. It's quite long, it's about 1100 words, so I won't repeat it now, but I will post a link on the Facebook page when it's published. By the way, big thanks to Helen Kreft, who's the Burton Mail reporter, who's been steadfast on this story for years, and big appreciation for her support on this. Helen herself has contacted the police to find out what they're doing on isotope analysis and I have also written to the police investigators about the same issue. But I've done a third thing. People outside the UK may not know that in the UK these days regions have police commissioners. They're elected heads of the police. It's a relatively recent development in the last decade in the UK. Now the police commissioner for Staffordshire which includes Burton, is a man called Ben Adams. Now, it's a political appointment. He needs to be elected. He needs to go to the electorate regularly to be re-elected. So, I don't even know if Ben Adams knows anything about the case. So I've written to him about the case and the fact it's something of a disgrace that it seems to have been given up on after all this time. And the potential political goodwill that might emanate from it being solved. And the isotope analysis is the obvious next investigative step. Now, I'll keep you posted on everything that we're doing in relation to that campaign, but I won't give up on it. That is the obvious thing to do. Even if we prove Hardy has something to do with the murder, we need to know who he is, because that is the primary objective of this whole endeavour. So let's get back to this story. A couple of weeks ago, I got a message out of the blue. Now I like getting messages out of the blue because they're nearly always interesting. This could be very interesting. I won't name who sent me it. I don't yet have the corroboration that it's true but we're working on it. 
This person, through his family, knew and still knows one of the psychiatrists who worked with Hardy. And this person doesn't live around Derby or Burton. He lives in the home counties where this psychiatrist lives. And this psychiatrist interviewed Hardy, analysed Hardy, had long conversations with Hardy. And that doctor is still practising. So it's sensitive. Now, I still don't know the identity of that doctor. I'm told that he will talk to me once he retires, which isn't very far into the future. But without his identity, it's very difficult to work out whether this is true or not. But this is what Hardy, I understand, is supposed to have said to that doctor, because this doctor has mentioned it to the person who contacted me. It's short, but it's very, very important. If, and it still remains an if, it's true, because it might not be, he may be making it up because we know people do that kind of thing, but for a moment, let's just take it at face value. The doctor was reportedly talking to Hardy about his abusive relationships with women, that he bullied women. The doctor said to him, why do you bully women? And Hardy said, I don't just bully women, I bully men too. I know someone you could ask if I bullied men, but you'd have to dig him up first. Now, remember, at this point in these conversations, nobody thinks Hardy has killed anyone because it's done before any of the bodies are found. But it still sounds remarkably like a confession. If you're going to have to dig someone up to talk to them, he's buried somewhere. The doctor went on. When did this happen? In my youth, was the reply. Now, let's unpack that a bit. If it's true. Hardy has just confessed to a psychiatrist to a murder of a man in his youth. We know where Hardy was in his youth and we know who that man is very likely to be. As I mentioned, don't take this as gospel yet. We're trying to find out if it is. But it is really interesting. If it is true, I'd be 99% certain Hardy killed Fred. And it would also be massively helpful in identifying Fred because Hardy and Fred would be connected. They would have known each other, maybe for a very short period of time, maybe for much longer. Now, some people will say, why are you telling us things you don't know are true? Well, remember, this is a real-time investigation and we've been spending real time on it. And the beauty of this investigation is you get to hear what we get to hear. And hopefully, we'll know a lot more by the next podcast. But I needed to update Ian again and get his thoughts on this new revelation. So, Ian, uh, just jumping back on the call with you here, because obviously one of the things I've just uh, let everybody know is that during the course of the last couple of weeks, 
someone has told us that Hardy may have had history in his youth of killing someone, a man, not a woman, a man. And that's obviously hugely important in relation to the Fred the Head case. Uh, if it's true, we don't know yet if it's true. If it's true, it's it's almost like a confession. So obviously you've been studying the Hardy the Hardy history. What's, what's your thoughts on that revelation? Does it surprise you at all? Uh, well, I'm delighted at it. Does it surprise me? Well, you know, he's an embryonic serial killer at that time. So it shouldn't really surprise me that... Um, that he, he, he might have confessed to doing that. I have to admit, in looking at the rest of his life around that time, it just seems one of success. In trying to corroborate this report that we got um, from one of the psychiatrists talking to him at uh, St. Luke's, I think, uh, and this is what I'm trying to go through Richard Price's book to see if we can track the names of the psychiatrists that were involved to try and talk to them and see if we can get confirmation from the horse's mouth. But in doing that, I'm finding out lots of little bits and pieces that Richard Price thought about um, Hardy and things that Hardy had said when he talked to him. Hmm. Hardy says that he's always been a thrill seeker, easily bored. Is that how he would have sought a thrill back as a teenager? Well, clearly he did get a thrill from domination, I think. I'm not a psychiatrist, but it, it seems obvious that he got a thrill from being in control of people, doing things, you know, awful things to people, and I guess also escaping justice. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that interested me about this, really based on what you'd said earlier, was the this idea that when he was in a hostel, he was just as violent to men anyway. He was just, yeah. At that point, he was just a violent man. He used to injure people. And he used to do it in a way, and he did this with the people he killed, them. sadly. He did it in a way that left no obvious injuries. Mm. And by essentially asphyxia and by crushing them and stopping them breathing and lying on them so they couldn't breathe and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's all very similar all plays back to Fred having no visible injuries. I mean, yeah, you know, really having been buried for 18 months, but no physical really, injuries on Fred. It really does. So I guess what we've got to do from here, in the light of the work you've done in terms of Hardy's history, in the light of what we've just found out, though, again, I say again, we've, you know, we've got to, we've got to prove that that's true and not just nonsense. But if we do prove that's true, and the way we'll do that is talking to the to the actual doctor. I mean, this changes the whole investigation, doesn't it? I think it pushes him right up to the top of priorities. Even, you know, we've got so far with Bible John and we've left that because that can be sorted out. This is this is hotter than that. It's the other side, of course, isn't it? This is the murderer, not the murdered. Um, but yeah. I think we've got to go through, you know, if we if we can find out that that sort of circumstantial evidence is there. It really puts him in the frame. And assuming he's, it is him, that should help us track down who Fred might be. Oh, 100%. Because if we've got a known serial killer essentially confessing that there was another murder of a man that would need to be dug up in his youth. I know. Oh, Tim. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean I'd, I'd put them. 
at this point in time, I'd say, well, we found the murderer. But if we found the murderer, it does help a great deal in terms of who Fred would be because Hardy must have known him. He might have known him for a very, very short period of time, or he may have known him for quite a long period of time, but he was in some way connected to Hardy. And that is a big step forward if it's all true. Now, I don't know if you want to include this in your, in the broadcast, Ken, mm -hmm. but we know we've been told by people who were at junior school with them that Hardy had one friend that he was very, very close to all the way through his school days. This is getting to the point where that friend would be a critical witness, I think, into the possibilities. Yeah. Don't, don't put this in. No, 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 no. Let's do put this in. We won't put his name in, but let's do right. put this in. So, well, yeah, he becomes critical. In fact, everybody who knew Hardy around that time becomes critical, but it, it sounds like Hardy didn't know many people. Sounds like he was a bit of a loner. Yeah. One close confidant, and we know who that is. Hold some secrets. I don't know if we talk to him or if we go with this to the police and get them to talk to him. We'll probably do both. It's really, yeah. it's really interesting, isn't it? Thanks for all the work you've done, Hardy. That's been really fascinating to hear. Well, again. hopefully there should be some more little gems for next time because I am literally only halfway through this book. You know, maybe there's a reference to, <laughs> to that fact of what he'd said. Uh, later in the book. I don't know. I haven't got that through that far. Well, uh, let's hope so. But, you know, in irrespective of that, uh, we've got some work to do, and it's really exciting work because it feels suddenly the trail film feels uh, quite warm again. Mm. So, brilliant. Enjoy enjoy Paris. Enjoy the Arc de Triomphe. Win loads of money, and uh, I'll catch up again soon. Well, you know me, Ken. I'll never win loads of money because I never bet loads of money. No, but you, you, you've got a good track, you've got a good strike rate, though, haven't you? Yeah. Not, well, yeah, but I mean, you're never never going to retire on putting two pound each way on something, are you? <laughs> oh, no, that's true. That's true, especially where the pound is at the moment. Um, brilliant. Okay, matey, you look after yourself. Have a great have a great trip, and uh, catch up next week. Absolutely. See you soon. Cheers, mate. So that's where we are. I don't know about you, but I cannot wait for the next episode. I can't wait to discover whether this is true or not. And I really hope by the time of the next episode, I can tell you if this is true or if it isn't. If it is, it changes everything. If it's not, we haven't lost anything. Hardy would still be a person of interest. But that's for next time. So until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis. <laughs>